0: Okay, let's uh, run over a couple of announcements here. Starting this week, we're going to have, this coming Sunday, have the children in here from age 8 up during the uh, opening part of the worship service, during the singing, offering, and then after the offertory, they will be dismissed to go to their uh, prep school classes. And then uh, Sunday afternoon, some of us will be driving to Dallas taking the equipment up there for the pre-trib rapture study group meeting. And so there will be no Bible class next Tuesday night. No Bible class. If you're out there in virtual congregation land, you can uh, queue up a video from a previous lesson. And then... The following Sunday, there's our Christmas brunch. So sign up for all those things. One other announcement is: and several people have commented to me or asked me more than I thought. One would have been more than I thought, and I've had three or four people indicate that they're seriously thinking about coming to uh, de- uh, coming to Washington D.C. in February. My dad's memorial service, or his interment, actually has been set now at the uh, Arlington National Cemetery for February the 1st, which is a Friday, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And um, so I've had several people ask me questions about this. We have – today we reserved a block of rooms at a hotel very close by. And so if anyone is interested in that, are coming up, and they may come up and stay for the weekend – Many people have said that they've never been to D.C., they've never been to Arlington National Cemetery, they don't know anyone who's buried there, and they've never seen a uh, military funeral with full military honors, and they would love to go because they know me, they've n- known my dad, and would like to go see something uh, like this uh, where there's some connection. And so that's fine, but uh, you can email us through Dean Bible Ministries if you wish to get some information. And we'll be glad to give that to you. So that's, uh, that's set for uh, February the 1st, 2013. Okay, anything else? I'm, I feel like I'm missing something. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. For the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Jack can make sure that the doors are closed, the air conditioners are set where they're supposed to be. Thank you, Jack. And uh, everybody else can make sure they're in fellowship. And then I will open in prayer. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. So you can make sure you're ready. And then uh, I'll pray. Let's pray. Oh, Father, it's a great privilege we have that we can come before your throne of grace. We can come directly into your throne room because the Lord Jesus Christ has opened the way, removed the veil paid the price for our sin that we might have access based upon his death, his substitutionary payment for our sin. Father, prayer is so common today that we often forget what a privilege it is in terms of history, that in most of history this sort of direct access was not possible. It is now only because of the completed work of Christ on the cross. Father, we pray for this congregation. We pray for those who are sick. We pray for people like, um, uh, Alan in touch right now as uh, she's recovering from her surgery and pray that she'll continue to recover. Pray for others who are facing life threatening diseases. Pray for them. Pray for their caregivers. Pray for those who are traveling. Father, above all, we pray for us that we might be faithful as students of your word, faithful as believers, faithful in pushing ourselves into obedience, uh, living each day in a way that uh, brings glory to you, and that we might be open and responsive to opportunities that we have to uh, proclaim the gospel, explain the gospel, just a word here, a word there, to, that you can use to bring people to a saving understanding of the gospel. And Father, we pray that tonight as we study your word, we might continue to be encouraged as we see that just as your hand was upon the uh, original disciples as they took the gospel throughout the world, so your providential care has directed believers through the last uh, 20 centuries so that we might have a clear uh, presentation of the gospel throughout the world and Hundreds of thousands, millions of people have trusted in Christ and responded to the cross, and they will all be in heaven. And may we understand the significance of that in our everyday life. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Uh, this morning, or this evening, we're going to continue our study in Acts, kind of a transitional break here on the apostles, God's choice men, these men that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ had uh, selected as his disciples, and then they became uh, a new breed, uh, a new class of believer uh, following that called uh, apostles. There are two classes of apostles, because we'll get into this a little bit tonight. The first class are those who are directly commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ. That would refer to the original uh, 12 minus Judas Iscariot, leaving 11. Then there were others who were called apostles, but they were not commissioned or sent out by the Lord Jesus Christ directly. They were sent out by uh, different churches. And they were commissioned by local churches. Barnabas is called an an apostle. James, the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, is called an apostle, though he's not saved until after the resurrection, same as Judas. Uh, There's uh, Junius, who's also called an apostle. But uh, they're sent out by by different congregations. That's their sending agency. So an apostle was somebody who was sent. So what's important is to understand who sent them and what they were sent to do. And that's what makes the difference between the apostles, in the sense of the eleven plus Paul, and apostles lower case, such as Barnabas, Junius, and we'll see in one passage we're looking at this this, uh, this evening uh, that particular uh, that particular distinction. And so it's uh, helpful to get into some of these uh, passages and some of these uh, uh, episodes a little bit as we study what happened to the what happened to the. Original eleven apostles, because the only two that are really mentioned in scripture where we get any significant understanding is is Jan, uh, excuse me John and, and Peter. Now last time, I was pointing out a couple of things related to how we handle the historical sources because when you get into a study like this we 're looking at some scriptures so we see the beginning, see a little bit of something of their personality in their life, and then i 'm adding to that. What little information we have related to tradition. Now there's two different words that, are, that we run across when reading uh, literature on this, the history. One is tradition, one is legend. Okay, you have certain legends like George Washington chopping down the cherry tree. Has absolutely no foundation in historical fact. It's just some story that's made up to tell, talk about his character. Then you have tradition. And tradition may have, may be built around something that is true, but it's been embellished a little bit or some things that weren't quite true were added to it. And I'll give you a little example just from my own uh, own background. Is, uh all my life, I've heard a couple of stories about some of my ancestors, one of whom was uh, allegedly the pastor of uh, First Baptist Church Atlanta, resigned his pulpit to become a chaplain in the Confederate Army. Now, the truth is he wasn't at First Baptist Church Atlanta, but he pastored, I've recently found this going through all my papers from my parents and everything. I found this huge, huge genealogical chart that my great aunt had made and that uh, I had a great, great grandfather who was a Baptist pastor who pastored eight or nine different churches in Atlanta and in uh, Alabama. And he was also a chaplain and um, the 8th Infantry Battalion, uh, uh, 8th Georgia Infantry Battalion during the uh, uh, war between the states. So there's an element of truth there that's true. So the tradition that I heard through the family kind of word of mouth sort of lost a little bit, uh, added a few little things, but essentially it was true but it wasn't it wasn't legend like something that's totally made up, something that is unrealistic. Uh, we all are familiar, I think, with the game that kids play called gossip where everybody s- stands in a circle and somebody starts off saying something and then each person whispers it to the next person as fast as they can, and it goes around the circle and when it comes to the other end it bears no resemblance whatsoever to the initial statement um, that Sometimes happens in, in history, but when we don't have hardcore historical records, and in a lot of cases in the early church, you just don't have records. We, we don't, but there are many things other than the lives of the apostles that, that we believe to be true, but we have very few written historical records uh, concerning, and I, I decided, I mentioned this last time, and I thought I would get a little more documentation to give you tonight, and I've uh, got this uh, a chart related to uh, the number of copies and the age of copies of ancient writings that that we have. Uh, for example, last time I had mentioned uh, Caesar's uh, writing on the uh, Gallic, War, Gallic Wars, and the earliest copy that we have is dated 900 A.D. And he wrote it about 50, 60 B.C. So this is almost a thousand years between the time he wrote it and the time. Uh, of the oldest copy that we have, and we only have ten copies, so that's the, a thousand-year gap. How do we? How can we really rely on that? There's a thousand years between the original and what was there. It could have been changed a thousand times. I mean, that's the argument they use against the Bible, and we have much smaller gaps than that, time gaps than that in the Bible. Uh, Plato. Well, let me skip down to this one. Pliny the Younger. Uh, wrote a history, okay, Tacitus, rather, in his annals and some of his minor works, wrote about 100 A.D., about the end of the New Testament period. The oldest copy that we have is 1,000 A.D., so that's a 900-year gap, and we only have one extant copy, only one. And yet, we're confident that that's what he wrote and that's what he said. But there's a 1,000-year gap. So So when we look at the criteria that modern scholarship uses in many other areas. uh, It's not as rigorous as some people want to say. And ancient historians did not footnote and document things like we do today. And so it's wrong to try to get them to say and document uh, some of the things that they say in the same way that we would uh, want that done today. We also have, for example, um, uh, Roman writer Lucretius died about 55 B.C., the oldest uh, copy that we have of his writings uh, some 1,100 years later, and it's um, that we only have two copies. Uh, And um, many many other ancient writers are that way. So we just have a huge, huge time gap. And yet when we come to what happened to the apostles, there are some different traditions. There's a lot of four or five centuries later, there are a lot of legends that get written about them and that that just, you know, they just, they're they're fanciful. But there are a number of traditions, and even though these traditions do not agree 100%, they may agree 60% or 70%, but there's a core geographical area where they put that apostle. There may be, uh, they may all agree as to how he was put to death. They may all agree on two or three other uh, other factors, and so there's a, an element of truth there that we can probably rely on due to the uh, amount of evidence that there is. but then we have to recognize that a lot of this isn't, uh, isn't that um, that well documented. Also, we have writings on the lives of the apostles from, by, by different ancient writers from the third century, fourth century time of the Reformation and yet they don't cite their sources. So modern man comes along and says, well, how do you know that they knew what they were talking about? They don't cite their sources. Well, nobody cited any sources at that time. But they had available to them at the time that they wrote, in the 3rd century, the 5th century, the 8th century, they had available to them sources that are no longer available to us. And so we can't just say, well, because we don't know where they got their information uh, we 're going to discount it that 's the sort of the arrogance of modern man in, in his in his uh, scholarship. so having said that, uh, I think it's helpful to study what happened to the apostles for this reason. A couple of reasons. Number one, we see the continued expansion of the church. the Holy Spirit focused on Peter and John and then Paul, and we saw how the Holy Spirit expanded the church under their leadership. But all of the apostles were going out fulfilling the, great, the uh, great Commission. A second thing that we see is that with one exception, all are said to have been martyred. The only exception is the Apostle John. That means that every one of these 11 disciples who witnessed the resurrected, physical, resurrected Lord Jesus Christ were willing to give their life for that. It's not something that when they were scared, when they, were, when they ran away, when Jesus was first crucified, when they hid from the Roman authorities, when Jesus appeared to them, they had a an unexplained courage and bravery and strength. That could never be taken away from them because they knew they had seen and heard and listened, and as the Apostle Paul said, uh, the Apostle John says in First John, what we saw and what we heard and what we touched. They knew that Jesus Christ had been raised from the dead, and nothing could change that. And they were willing to give their lives for for that. And that gives us great confidence that what we have in the Scripture isn't something that we just made up. It isn't like some religions where there's one man or two men who have some sort of insight, and and they give their lives. It's any one or two people can be deluded or demented to give their life for some weird hallucination. But for 11 men to, uh, or 10 men of the 11 to have given their lives for the truth of the resurrection, the truth of the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is a tremendous testimony to the accuracy of their of their testimony. Now, last time we've looked at Peter, we've looked at, uh, we've looked at John, we've looked at a couple of others, uh, Nathaniel. Now I want to look at James, who is the brother of John. Uh, James and John are both called the sons of thunder. Their father's name was Zebedee. Their mother's name was Salome, who was most likely, as I pointed out last time, a sister of Mary, the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that would indicate that James and John... It's a little warm up here. Jack, did you check the A.C. up in the front, please? I know I'm getting warm, and I just saw somebody take their jacket off, so it's starting to heat up here. Thank you. So uh, James and uh, John... Are both uh, are, are both uh, fishermen. They work with Peter and Andrew. They have a, uh, a going business. John. Uh, they're they're both descendants of a priestly family. When we look at the Apostle John as he is uh, outside when he's in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus' arrest, he goes to the house of the high priest where he's asking questions. He's recognized. He, there's a level of familiarity there uh, the same would be true of his brother uh, of his brother James and so this we're introduced to them at the very beginning of our lord's ministry and they're listed among among um, uh, his followers they were from uh, Bethsaida and they lived in Capernaum and it was on the Sea of Galilee that they had their uh, their ministry now we see among the list of the uh, of the uh, apostles in Matthew 10 2-4 uh, we talked about Peter and Andrew now James the son of Jebedee and John his brother uh, Philip and Bartholomew we talked about Bartholomew Thomas we haven't talked about yet I'll try to get to Matthew and then James the son of Alphaeus we've got James the son of Alphaeus we've got uh, James the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ we've got James the son of Zebedee and in some passages, a reference to James the Lesser, who's probably the same as James, uh, the son of uh, son of Alphaeus. I looked last time, talking about John, we have the references to, in John 19.25, Matthew 27.56, and Mark 15.40. When you compare these, you see Mary, the mother of uh, James the Less and Joseph, this would be... Uh, uh, Probably the mother of James uh, of, uh, Alphaeus, the son of Alphaeus, so that would be his mother, Mary Magdalene, and then Salome. Salome would be the mother of uh, Zebedee's sons, uh, James and, and John. Now, James, the son of, Jeb, uh, of Zebedee, what we know about him is he is a Galilean, as the others are. He is a fisherman. While they didn't have very large uh, fishing vessels, they there was a commercial enterprise, and their father uh, had a, a good business, and James uh, had a had a house in Jerusalem, from what we know and other passages, and this he was probably the connection in Jerusalem for the uh, for the sale of fish, and he was the uh, sort of the advanced uh, marketer in terms of, uh, of the fishing business. Uh, James and his brother John, as, as well as Simon uh, Peter, were the three of the disciples that were in the inner circle, the closest uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, we see this especially in one particular uh, passage and dealing with the Mount of Transfiguration. And this is seen in Matthew chapter 17. Uh, now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother. Now, that James is the probably the older one because he's usually mentioned first when the two are mentioned. James is mentioned, and then John is uh, sort of like Andrew. Andrew's Peter's brother. And ja- John is mentioned as James' brother. That stops after a while when we get into the early church because James is the first disciple that is going to uh, be executed uh, for his faith. But in this picture in Matthew 17, it's Peter, James, and John who were taken with the Lord Jesus Christ up on top of this mountain. It's not designated which one it is. When you go to Israel and you're on a trip in Israel, there are various places that are suggested as the Mount of Transfiguration. There's one suggestion that it's, uh, uh, that it's uh, Mount Tabor. There's another suggestion that it's up further north at Mount Hermon, uh, different places, but we're not sure. It's just he goes up onto an elevated place up in the hill country of Galilee, and there uh, in isolation with just these three, he's transfigured. His humanity, the veil of his humanity is allowed to be drawn back, and the glory of his deity shines forth, uh, somewhat cloaked, probably, but still shines forth. He becomes his clothes become as white as light, and they see him in his as God. Uh, at the same time, Moses and Elijah appear to them. So this is just an incredible privilege for these three, showing how close they are to the Lord and the significance He placed upon their their training at this point in terms of their uh, their future role, their future their future ministry. Moses and Elijah appear to them, and this is, of course, when Peter sticks his foot in his mouth and says, well, let's build a little shelter here and worship all three of them. And uh, then uh, God the Father interrupts Peter and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So Peter gets one of many uh, rebukes. Uh, we get another picture of, uh, of James and John because they're called, their nickname nicknamed Boanerges, Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. And that is because they had a somewhat uh, expressive personality. They're out there in front. They are in their humanity. They were probably strong leaders, outspoken. They, like Peter, they often spoke before they thought. And we read in Luke 9, When his disciples James and John saw this, um, that is, opposition, uh, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? They're ready to go to battle. But the Lord turned and rebuked them and said, You don't know what manner of spirit you're of, for the Son of Man did not come to to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And so they went to another, another village. Again, indicating they're ready to fight, but they don't understand what the mission is yet. Uh, so this is James, the brother of uh, the, the brother of uh, John, and they play a vital role. They're also present. James and John and Peter are all there at the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew twenty-six verse thirty-seven, and Mark fourteen thirty-three, indicating that they are to withdraw with Jesus and be sort of a guard around him in case anything uh, were to happen if Jesus were to be attacked um, in some way. Uh, Mark 3.17 gives the passage for the nickname Boanerges where the Lord rebukes them because they're constantly uh, speaking out of turn and running ahead of whatever information uh, that they have. Um, We don't know what... Anything that went on with James uh, between the time of the day of Pentecost and the beginning of the church until he comes on the scene as the leader of the church in Jerusalem in AD 44. We've just recently studied that in Acts when he is uh, martyred by uh, Herod uh, uh, Herod Agrippa the I, the first one to be to be martyred. And so that ended his his career. And the as a result of that, the church and that persecution, the church began to expand out uh, even more. Now, one of the problems that we have whenever we study a James in the New Testament is going to be what? Which James are you talking about? And in the tradition in the early church, as they would talk about what, what, what happened with one James and what happened to another James, often those traditions got a little bit confused. And we see some evidence of that because there are some who uh, believe that uh, James, the writer of the uh, of the Epistle of James, was James uh, James the brother of John, rather than James the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there there was a a viewpoint that uh, in those intervening years of approximately ten or eleven years between the resurrection of Christ. And the death of uh, James, that he went to Spain, visited a um, uh, visited uh, a large Jewish community that was in the Iberian Peninsula, and that that's to whom he was writing the epistle of James. That is pretty much disregarded today by most most scholars, but it, I just relate that because it shows how people would confuse uh these uh the different jameses that are mentioned uh in the scripture the uh james that is mentioned uh that is the author of the epistle of james is most likely james the brother of jesus and that's because of the way that he introduces the epistle same as jude they don't talk about being the brother of jesus but both james and jude were uh the uh, actual brothers of the Lord Jesus, the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ, Matthew thirteen fifty five, when uh, Jesus is preaching to the hometown crowd there in Nazareth, they're saying, "Isn't this the carpenter's son?" Wait a minute, who's? How can he be so smart and so wise about Scripture? This is, this is the carpenter's son. He's just, uh, he, we watched him grow up. How does he know all of this? Isn't his mother called Mary? Wait a minute, where did did he get to this point where he can claim to be the Messiah? And aren't his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Now, if you have a Roman Catholic background, what you're always taught is that brother here doesn't mean brother, it means cousin. Because uh, in Roman Catholic doctrine, you have a doctrine called the Immaculate Conception, And, um, and that has to, part of that doctrine is that Mary remained a perpetual virgin. So she didn't have any other, uh, any other children. So these aren't literal brothers and sisters, but there's no evidence of that anywhere in scripture. The word brother, uh, never means anything other than a, a brother when it's talking about a family situation. It can be extended in a metaphorical sense to others, brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Uh, something of that nature, but it's not a substitute for cousin. It's not a substitute for uh, distant relative. It always refers, when it's talking about a family connection, to a literal brother or or literal sister. So this is the first time we see James mentioned, and none of his brothers are saved, uh, none of his siblings are saved at this point. They think he's a little bit uh, uh, off his rocker, claiming to be, claiming to be the Messiah, which shows how profoundly rooted arrogance and unbelief can be. You would think, well, if you grew up in a family and your oldest brother was the Messiah of Israel, the Lord of the universe, and all the things that happened to Mary and Joseph at the time of his birth were the subject of family uh, story and talk and discussion... That, that you would be, you would grow up believing that. I think that's a great encouragement for some parents who have children who don't seem too interested in spiritual things and don't seem to express that as they're growing up. Here you have Jesus, who's perfect. I mean, if he's going to communicate anything perfectly to anybody, he's going to do it within his own family, wouldn't you think? And yet he has brothers and probably sisters who don't Believe that he's the Messiah until after the resurrection. And what that, that well, the encouraging thing I think about that is it shows us how profoundly tenacious that suppression of truth in unrighteousness is in the unbelieving, rebellious heart of, of, uh, of human beings because of sin. We just don't want to uh, respond to God. And so when we first are introduced to his siblings, they don't want to have anything to do with him uh, spiritually. And they're not mentioned positively until 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is the uh, <clears throat> summary Paul gives of the what I call the full gospel. I don't mean that in a Pentecostal sense, but I mean that in the sense that Paul talked about the gospel in a narrow sense, what you needed to believe to have eternal life. And then he talked about the gospel in a broader sense because everything that's part of Christian doctrine is telling us good news. It's the good news not only of how to have life everlasting in heaven, but how to have the fullness of life here on earth. That's the full gospel. It's the whole realm of doctrine. And so that's what Paul describes here. In the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 15, he's relating the gospel that he had previously delivered to them about Jesus Christ, that he was crucified according to the scriptures, and then verse 4 begins, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scripture. And that he was seen by Cephas, or actually it should be pronounced Kephas, because in Greek there was no uh, soft uh, soft C, so it's a K that is actually in the original, so it should be translated with a hard uh, guttural sound, Kephas, then by the twelve, notice who, who's. what's the first group that's mentioned? These are the immediate disciples, the twelve. Kephas, then they're called the twelve even though by the time he appears to them, how many were there? Eleven. Because Judas is already dead. So you had Kephas is separated from the twelve, but there were only ten others. The eleven minus Judas. So they're called the 12 because they were called the 12 for a long time. It's sort of like the 12th man on the uh, Texas A&M football team. Uh, There's just a, this this tradition of of a certain number, and when you didn't have it, they were still called that number, okay? So that's the idea. They, had, they were now reduced to 11, but they had been called the 12 for so long that they were still called the 12. So he appears to, to Kephas, then the twelve, and after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part to the present are still alive, uh, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by whom? Now we have a different group here, James, then by all the apostles. Wait a minute. What did he say in verse 5? He, It's the twelve. So he's distinguishing two groups of individuals, the original 11 apostles who were commissioned by Jesus Christ and then a second or, or a second tier of apostles that are not apostles in the capital A sense that they've been commissioned by Jesus Christ to be the foundation of the church, Ephesians 2.20, but they are apostles in this, that secondary sense of having been commissioned by uh, local church bodies to go out and take take the gospel. We have that used the same sense. So here, after he appears to the twelve, to the five hundred, all of these, then he appears to James, and then to others. This is when he. Is, this is approximately the time when James is saved after the resurrection. James becomes a significant leader in the in the church in in uh, Jerusalem. In fact, he is the Pastor, you might say, over the church in Jerusalem. You have Peter, John, the rest of the uh, of the twelve, but they're apostles. They're not focusing on a local pastor, uh, local pastoral ministry. They're broader than that. They're going out, taking the gospel eventually to Samaria, Judea, and the uttermost part of the world. But James is 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 the one who's the pastor, the teacher, the leader of the group in Jerusalem. And so some eight or nine years later when uh, the Apostle Paul has been saved, spends about three years up in Damascus, he goes up to Jerusalem to see Peter, remains with him for 15 days, and then he says, but I saw none other of the apostles except who? James, the Lord's brother. Now this is not classifying James, the Lord's brother, as an apostle, capital A, but as a lowercase apostle, like Barnabas, Junius, and others who are uh, indicated that uh, by that terminology in the in the early church. So this is James, the brother of Jesus. He's the one who's the author of the uh, author of the epistle uh, to uh, the twelve tribes. So he has a primarily Jewish ministry. I think the Epistle of James is the earliest epistle. I think it's the first epistle written in the New Testament. It's written to the twelve tribes scattered abroad. It's, he's written to those who are Jewish when the, he's writing. When the church is still, uh, the early church is still primarily a, um, a a Jewish church. Now, there's a tradition that says that James was appointed the first pastor of the Jerusalem church by the Lord Himself as well as the other uh, other apostles. We have no record of that. There's nothing that we could base that on. I think that's probably more of the fictional side of tradition than the historical side of tradition. What we do know of is that in Acts chapter 15, uh, when the, um, J- this is James, the Lord's brother, uh, when the church comes together in um, uh, in Jerusalem to deal with this issue of the inclusion of Gentiles is that James is seen as a, the leader of the church in Acts chapter 15. This is why it gets confusing. Who's the first leader, who's the first leader of the church in, in Jerusalem? It's James, the brother of John. Who, fought, who succeeds him? James, the brother of our Lord. So the, J, what James you're talking about can get a little bit uh, confusing there. So this is the James who's our Lord's brother. He's the one who heads up the Jerusalem council, as we'll see when we get to Acts chapter 15, and that his focus is on uh, this this Jewish, Jewish ministry. According to one of the early church fathers who lived at the end of the second century around 180, uh, James was uh, so rigorous in his adherence to the, the Jewish law, He's still very, and that brings up another question we'll get into is, is, were the early Jewish Christians out of line, some people tell you they are, by following the law. And that's not, not necessarily so because they weren't following the law as a means of sanctification. They were following it as a code of conduct that they had always been um, raised with, and so that's how they lived their life. They weren't looking at it from a Judaistic perspective that by observing the commandments, they would receive more grace. That's the difference between, ultimately the difference between Christianity and post-Second Temple Judaism. In post-Second Temple Judaism, once the sacrifices could no longer be uh, observed at the temple, they re- had to restructure. If, you, if you're not going to be able to sacrifice, shed blood for the cleansing of sin, how are you going to get forgiveness? This can be a major issue, especially on the Day of Atonement. How are you going to have cleansing of sin? So in Second Temple Judaism, they said, well, you know, you, you do it through the sacrifice of giving, the sac- various different sacrifices of ritual, not literal physical animal sacrifices. Well, the Old Testament emphasizes the fact that that uh, uh, this is all a picture of the cleansing of sin, and sin's got to be dealt with. Um, so how do you deal with sin? In, in, in post-Second Temple Judaism, sin is dealt with by observing the law. It's by following the commandments, and the, you become righteous by observing the commandments. That's not any different from Roman Catholic theology that says that uh, that Jesus established a treasury or a merit, uh, a treasury of merit, and that each time you observe the sacrifices or, I mean, excuse me, sacraments or, or commandments, you, you get parceled out, uh, you get dealt a little more merit, and someday you'll have enough merit to go to heaven. Uh, under Second Temple Judaism, how much righteousness do you have to earn to finally be able to go to heaven? It's a works-based righteousness. Righteousness. And if you look at the Old Testament, righteousness comes by faith. This is Genesis 15, 6. Uh, Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him as righteousness. Isaiah chapter 53, the uh, Messiah has to die for his people so they can be made righteous. It is uh, not a works-based righteousness, which is what we have uh, expressed in In the New Testament. It's we're saved not by works of righteousness. Righteousness which we've done, but according to his mercy, he He saved us. So the er, a lot of early church Jewish Christians still observe the law. Paul does. He takes a vow. He shaves his head. He goes to the temple. But they're not observing certain aspects of the law. But they are observing The temple's still in existence, so God hasn't, hasn't wiped out the temple yet. It's that transition period. And so James is still very... Uh, Uh, Very respectful of the law, uh, has an austere lifestyle, and he was nicknamed James the Just. And uh, finally, he was uh, martyred. And the story is that in uh, A.D. 61, that he is finally involved in this confrontation with the uh, Pharisees, and they throw him off of the pinnacle of the temple, but he survives, and he gets up, and he is still alive, and so then they stone him uh, until he dies and then he's, the tradition is that he was buried then on uh, the Mount of olives and that is probably an accurate uh, accurate tradition that uh, because it doesn 't vary a whole lot there 's a couple of other little details, but that seems to be one that has a uh, a, a good source in um, in history, now another James that was one of the dis- one of the uh, uh, disciples is James the son of Alphaeus. James the son of Alphaeus, and he's uh, listed in all the lists: Matthew ten three, Mark three eighteen, and Luke six fifteen, and as well as Acts 1.13 is one of the um, one of the disciples. But we don't know much about it. Now, what's interesting is that there's another disciple. Uh, by the name of Levi, which would indicate his tribal origin, uh, also known as Matthew, who's the author of the Gospel of Matthew, who is described in Mark 2.14 as the son of Alphaeus. Now, this sets up a little bit of a debate because you have some scholars who say, well, that can't make sense because here you have Matthew, who is... Uh, he's basically gone over to the Romans, he's a tax collector, uh, they, they, they were called publicans, not republicans, but just publicans, that's what a publican was, was a tax collector, and um, uh, so Matthew was a tax collector, and the way tax collectors worked was they were, they were given a contract to raise taxes, and at the end of the... Uh, tax-raising uh, tax, uh, tax raising period, they would be responsible for bringing in a set amount of money. Anything they raised above that was pure profit. And so they had, didn't have a lot of integrity, and they would go out uh, and raise as much as they could initially because they might not know if they would reach their goal, but they would often put it to the people. And so the the people, the Jews, hated the, the publicans because they had sort of sold out their Jewish... Uh, 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 back their Jewish relatives and background for the sake of money and they were working for the Romans. And so here on the one hand you would have this, this almost a turncoat, this, this Jewish publican tax collector, and on the other side you have this rig- rigorous, uh, righteous, uh, law-abiding James, um, the son of Alphaeus. Uh, And so, because that's how he's pictured in a couple of places, much like James, uh, James, uh, brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's this, in in the historical argument, there's this, well, how can these two totally opposite brothers be together? Well, we don't know that that's an accurate uh, characterization of either one of them. That's just a tradition. But the text does say that James is the son of Alphaeus, and that Matthew was the son of Alphaeus. So you would think that, well, they must be brothers. Of course, the the answer to that is that the other brother sets that are in the Scripture are clearly said to be brothers. Uh, Andrew is the brother of Peter. James is the brother of John. We're told that. If Levi and James, the son of Alphaeus, were brothers, we might be told that they were brothers, but it never says uh, specifically that they were brothers. They could easily have each have. Fa- Alpheus wasn't an, an uncommon name, and so it's possible that they both had uh, fathers of the same name. So there's a little bit of debate back and forth there, but that's pretty much all we know about James, the son of Alpheus. We're not even sure how he ended up um, dying. Now let me see. I've got a map that I put in here. Here we go. This is a map. I can't make it much larger because we'll lose the uh, resolution. But this shows where different uh, disciples or apostles went. And we see James, um, son of Alphaeus, down here in Egypt. There was one tradition uh, that he ended up dying there and being martyred in Egypt. But the most likely one is that uh, he died somewhere up in Egypt. Uh, uh, in Israel. So you have Peter, John, James, son of Alphaeus, James, that, I mean, they're, they're, where there's a cross by their name is where they were killed or martyred, according to tradition. If there's not a cross where you don't have here, then he would have uh, had some sort of a traditional historic uh, ministry there. So we have uh, S- James Alpheus. There's one tradition that he dies in Egypt, but it's not a very firm tradition, not one that we could count on. Uh, very much. The next apostle that I want to talk about is Matthew. Now we know a little bit more about Matthew. Uh, his name uh, is, uh, is also called Levi, which indicates that he would have been from a priestly line. He's a tax collector. He's from Capernaum, which is there on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, he, so he was uh, one who taxed the fishermen. And so he would have been fairly well known and despised by most of the people who lived in that area and in Matthew nine he is called by jesus and he immediately stops what he what he's doing, and he follows Jesus. that says a lot about his character and his positive volition. Here he's involved in a in a highly uh, disliked profession as a tax collector. Uh, one where anybody who's a tax collector who's a publican is a sinner. That's why there would be these statements, you'd read it in the King James, later they don't use the term publican, that Jesus would eat with publicans and sinners. How could he do that? That's like saying he, he always went out, he liked to go out and eat lunch with the IRS agents. Really? Hmm. What does that say about somebody's character if they like to hang out around a bunch of IRS agents all the time? That uh, can't be good so but Jesus did so Matt but matthew is positive and so he immediately responds when Jesus uh when Jesus called him and he is always listed as one of the uh one of the one of the disciples but again we don't learn a whole lot about him in the scripture except that he is uh present he is there and he's always in the list and he's always just just part of the uh group of the other uh, eight or nine, uh, eight or nine disciples. Now later on, after the New Testament, we have some conflicting reports, but most of them focus on him going to an area known as Ethiopia. Now I'm not an expert in this at all, but according to what I've been reading on this, there was a region in Parthia that had a name similar to Ethiopia. So there's one tradition that puts Matthew over in uh, Ethiopia. Here we go, up on this little block here, you have Matthew in uh, this area in Parthia, and then you see on this map, you have Matthew also down here in where we think of modern Ethiopia. So I'm not sure which is which. I think that the from what I read, it's very likely that most of these men went to different areas. Peter went to uh, Parthia he went to Persia, he went to Babylon, and then later he ends up uh, being uh, martyred in Rome, so just because uh, they, there's a report that they're in one area and then later on in an opposite area, and the Roman Empire doesn't mean they didn't uh, they didn't travel and they didn't uh, travel from one end of the empire to the other, uh, taking the gospel. The other problem you have is that there's a similarity between the name of Matthias and Matthew, and Matthias was the disciple chosen to replace Judas in, in uh, uh, Acts chapter 1, and because of the similarity of their names, there's a certain amount of confusion in these traditions as to whether you were talking about Matthew or Matthias. But the one thing that is clear uh, is that Matthew was um, uh, martyred. He was condemned to death by the uh, Sanhedrin, and there's a strong tradition that either in, that in Ethiopia, whether that's the one in Parthia, the one down south of Egypt, that he was uh, martyred in that location. And then one last one I want to cover tonight before we wrap up, uh, which will mean next time we'll, we'll finish our little survey of these uh, apostles is Simon Zelotes, Simon the Zealot. And again, we have another Simon, we have Simon Peter, now we have Simon the Zealot, and he's presumably called a zealot because he came from that political party. The zealots were an extreme uh, right-wing Jewish patriotic party antagonistic to to the uh, Romans, and it's very likely that he was part of that organization. They uh, were... Uh, they were engaged in what we would call today terrorist activities against the Romans, and he was a zealot. But he, um, but that's about all that we know about him. In Matthew ten four, in the list there, and in Mark three eighteen, he is uh, called uh, Simon the uh, Canaanite. Uh, Simon the Canaanite, because apparently there's a similarity in the original uh, between that and the Aramaic word for zealot. So there's a lot of discussion about uh, about that, but it's all the same person. Simon the Canaanite, Simon the Zealot uh, refers to the same person. Otherwise, the New Testament says nothing about him, and we don't know a whole lot about him in terms of tradition. Some tradition puts him down in uh, Egypt, Uh, Other part of the tradition puts him over in Parthia where he is martyred, but we don't have any specific uh, details related uh, to that. So the only ones we have left to cover are uh, Thomas, and then I'll look at a couple others like uh, Lazarus and Mary and Martha. There's a tradition that they're all buried uh, in Marseille in the southern coast of France, that that is where they ended up going and taking the gospel. So, uh, but that's that's probably a pretty, you know, fairly certain a tradition is anything that we have there. Their, their graves are allegedly there. And uh, all it points out to is all of the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ as a result of the persecution that arose in Judea scattered and they took the gospel all around the world because they were so convinced of its truth because they had witnessed that the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And it's that degree of passion and commitment that we all ought to have. Because that commission that Jesus gave to them is the same that's true for us, is that wherever we go, we are to uh, make disciples. We are to challenge people with the gospel and to make it clear. Last night, I won't mention any names, last night I went to an event. I was at this event and there were a number of other people at this event who were believers. And uh, there were some others that were there that obviously were not. There were a a few there that were from this church, a few that were from a couple of other churches uh, that we're familiar with. And and there were various other people there who I did not know. And there was uh, one young man there who was the son of a good friend of mine who's Jewish, not a believer. And then there was a friend of mine there who was uh, a little older. And uh, I noticed that when people get a little older, Gene... That although you 've been this way all your life, they don 't hold back you know they don 't have much time left, so it 's like well i 'm not going to try to take twenty years to convince this person they 're saved. I just got to cut to the chase right now and so I was standing there talking to this uh, uh Jewish man who 's probably about maybe ten years younger than me, and we were talking about this other individual and he was making some comments about her uh, very positive comments about her. And then afterwards, as uh, I was talking to her, she said, well, I saw so-and-so there, and I just, when he came over and said hi, I just said, well, have you become a Christian yet? He said, well, no, not, not that I know of. And uh, she said, well, you, I'm praying for you. You, need to, uh, you. you need to become a Christian. And I thought, you know, when you're older, you can get away with that. Sometimes we can't get away with that. But we certainly have to have a, a lot more uh, courage in our witnessing uh, than a lot of us do. We're just a little too soft, and we uh, are a little too too uh, cautious in uh, getting it right out there. And who knows that person that we see might not be alive in a week or two weeks or whatever. We need to be more focused on the importance of witnessing to everyone around us. Next week I'll come back and we'll finish up with the last couple of apostles and a couple of others, and then we will go forward into the expansion of the church in Paul's first missionary journey. Well, not next week, because we have pre-trib next week. It'll be in two weeks. Okay? Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to be encouraged by the apostles that there was no opposition that they faced that discouraged them. And, Father, too often we let just a little bit of opposition discourage us, and yet they were willing to give their life for the truth of the gospel because they had such a commitment to it. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with their example and that we might have a desire to see those around us who are unsaved clearly understand the gospel and that we, in in an unoffensive manner we make it very clear again and again and again what the issue is, that it's Jesus Christ and let the cross be the cause of the offense and not our manner or our way of presentation, but that we do have the courage to make the issue clear.